If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It was a Friday evening in London. It was just past midsummer. It was the 22nd of June, the after to the river, to the trip to Echo Spring and the lonely city after wolf, alcohol, loneliness and art, landscape and psychology. There was Crudo. It was a brand new thing. Its writer had found a mood, a language and a form for now as well as then. It was so exciting. She'd written books about the lives of writers and the life of writing. This book was about and simultaneously was an example of the life in writing and the writing in life. It was red hot poetry and neurosis. It was the fragility of bravado and the bravado of fragility. It was red hot intelligence meeting what it called the centrifuge of history. And if the heroine of her first book, Virginia Woolf, was asking almost exactly 100 years ago, but what is reality? And who are the judges of reality? This book, Crudo, was and is today's answer to those questions in the novel form. Crudo takes what's been in her other books, her critical dialogue with other writers and artists, and turns it into an art form in itself. It is love story and rebellion against given form in one. It is a book so about dialogue with the makers of story, art, language, and the real, that its protagonist exists in a full-flown aesthetic fusion, one that it's dangerous dangerous to split and one which is pulling always centrifugally and centripetally towards splitting and away from creation and towards creation and destruction both. So that the novel becomes a critique of how we live in culture and how culture creates us as we create it. It is a whole new take and revelation on and shared experience of shared living, communal voice. It is a simultaneous kind of fracture and cohesion and it's like each life is. It is sharp and blunt about our reality from the personal atomic all the way to the master race Twitter fest that we're all being politically subjected to right now is a forceful book driving forward at a pitch that is unimaginable but true happening right now to us and round us. It's the written texture of the actual. It is completely contemporary. And now let's drop into some Shakespeare. Let's just visit for a moment that Make Me a Willow Cabin speech uh, from Twelfth Night to introduce to celebrate the brilliant first novel by Olivia. We're done now, that's it. <laughs> and she's going to read now, aren't I'm you? Gonna, I'm going to read. I'm going to read. This book actually, I'm not going to read the bit, but there is a bit in this book about being at a reading in the LRB, so it feels quite strange to be at a reading in the LRB. <laughs> reading. <laughs> Marriage in five days. Marriage in four days. Cathy peeled herself from her husband and boarded a train to London. She was feeling panicky. She couldn't quite remember how to be alone. Ironic, since she was the poster girl for female solitude. (laughs) Itself ironic, since she barely regarded herself as female. A fag with tits. Statistically improbable, but not unheard of, especially in the conglomerate building internet era of gender dismantlement. The best thing about breast cancer was the double mastectomy. Lock them both off, she said. I always hated them. Hair cropped, skinny, flat chested. She was a lovely, dickless boy, a wrinkling Dorian Gray, fondling her jewels. Who was the drag queen who'd kept a mummified corpse in her studio for years? Dorian Corey? No one Cathy actually liked had a stable gender identity. Not really. Transitioning, she loved the word, with its sense of constant emergence and zero arrival. 
She was indeterminate and oversexed, a hot chrysalis. If she had a dick, you better believe it would be perfect, at least as good as David Bowie's. <laughs> okay, I've been so looking forward to doing that line. At Kingscroft, she took the Piccadilly to Holloway Road and walked north. She stopped at the Costa to buy mineral water and proceeded to an alley off Seven Sisters Road. The artist occupied a windowless studio. Her work was very pure and strange. She'd invented a new technique that allowed her to incorporate motion, assembling her sculptures precariously so that they toppled or burst or otherwise deviated from authorial design inside the kiln. The new pieces were kinetic and disturbing. They contained dangling entrails and slabs of bacon, hide, balls, a donkey's head, women's dainty ankles and bare Barbie doll feet, petals, guts, cloaks and various internal organs. They weren't representational. Cathy just kept being reminded of things she'd seen, rendered deliciously in the coolness of porcelain. There wasn't any precedent. Maybe a garden that was simultaneously a mass grave would give you the right feeling, or some sort of body soup, out of which a white world would shortly be created. They were that frightening, that generative and grossly pretty. The new ones had a component she hadn't seen before, which looked like the spine of a dead dolphin. Cathy wasn't being whimsical. She'd seen the spine of a dead dolphin, and this frighteningly ratcheted, torted shape reminded her of it. Studio visit accomplished, PG tips drunk. <laughs> Cathy went back to King's Cross and met Jenny in the pub. They talked about marriage, how to do it so it didn't bury you beneath all its baggage. Yeah, marriage! <laughs> <laughs> they thought they had a handle on it. They thought they could see a way to maintaining their dignity, independence, autonomy, style. But it was touch and go, they both admitted. Place cards, stag dues, the whole thing was fucking repulsive. <laughs> Someone somewhere had told her that day about hearing women say they were voting for Trump because they didn't want to work. I mean, Cathy said, three beers in. Could we just fucking abolish not even gender, but people, I'm done. <laughs> Home again, she went on Instagram, rich, naked and pallid in the ruined fallout shelters of Orford Ness. Somebody's courgettes arranged and lit like a Renaissance painting. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of the morning, she'd become an expert on neo-Nazis. She knew about the Oath Keepers and the Three Presenters. She knew that cops were even crazier and more racist and evil than she thought, which, speaking as a cop watcher of Rodney King and Michael Stewart through to Philandro Castile and Eric Garner, was maximally racist and unjust. It was late. She was up in her study listening to trains and a neighbour, or burglar, hauling sacks of compost in their garden. Red lights, white lights. How close to the state do you want to get? Do you care for the state? Does the state mean anything to you at all? Cathy mm. was a libtard, regular schmuck. But she was also a biker bitch, a libertarian, live and let live. She didn't give a fuck. People could rip each other's faces off if that's what they wanted. Only she really hated a racist cop with a gun, strip them and drive them through the streets like wild pigs. Wouldn't that be the best thing to do? Outside, a man was shouting, no power, no power, in a resigned voice. A new camaraderie, a green square like a meadow we can all be friends in. Cathy was tipsy and punchy. Cathy's hope is the hardest thing to hide. Mm. Okay. Two questions in tandem to start us off. First, how did you start to write this? Where did fiction suddenly come from, out of your non-fiction? And also first, why Cathy Acker? 
Oh, well, that's good, because those questions are the same yeah. answer. I've been trying for the last couple of years to write a book about bodies and embodiment and what it's like to live in a human body in the 21st century with all of the many forces arranged against bodies. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't write it. And I realized that part of the reason was because you need some sort of a sense of a stable. I can see my publisher looking very tense at the back. <laughs> I can do it. It's going to be OK. <laughs> um, you need some sort of stable platform. You need some sense that you've understood what's happening mm. and that you can comment on it. And I couldn't find that. Everything was changing too fast. The levels of violence, the rise of the right, all of these things were just in flux. So I was very, very frustrated. And I was in Italy reading Chris Krauss's amazing biography of Kathy Acker. And there was a bit in it about how Kathy would go into a library, pick up a biography of Toulouse-Lautrec or a book of Dickens, and she'd just turn it into the first person. And something about that just made me feel excited. And I thought, well, what happens if I just plagiarize my life, steal my life, put it in the Kathy Acker person, and just see what happens in terms of writing down what's going on? And as soon as I started, as soon as I wrote the first sentence, I realized that I'd found a form that allowed me to I mean, you see it in that reading, capture that sort of thing of the movement between an internal world and a terrifying, rapidly shifting external world. So that was the beginning. So what was that, what was that like then dealing with the pool between first and third? I mean, or did it feel utterly liberating to be able to do both? Completely liberating. I mean, there's, there's first person on the first page and then the first person is ditched and there is this Cathy character, but really everything that happens to her either happened to Cathy Acker or it happened to me. There's a fusion of that. So Acker because she embeds? Acker because she's a thief. Acker because she's somebody Great. who... Yeah. Acker because yeah. we have this funny idea of Kathy Acker right now. We have this idea of her as this sort of woman with piercings and tattoos who wore Vivian Westwood. And that's sort of stuck in people's minds. And actually, Kathy Acker should be remembered and maybe is starting to be remembered for her extraordinary writing, which speaks like almost no one else I can think of to the present moment. It's about abortion, it's about terrorists, it's about the far right, it's about all of these things that five years ago mm. felt like they were the past, they were the mm. 80s, mm. and now they feel like they are smacking you in the face every morning. Okay, so the, what, what the book does with that, with that uh, kind of bringing together of the, all the possible selves via the self, via the culture that the self has imbibed, as it were, it's, it reminds me of there's, there's uh, when you're talking about Wojnarowicz in The Lonely City, mm who wears the Rambo mask. And then I found this fantastic, that moment where Rambo says, je est un autre, I am an other, I am the, yeah. the, the you, know, I, the, I, you know, I is actually, I is the other. Yeah. Um, talk to me about how mask is working then in this. Yeah. The, the Rambo analogy is so, oh, my friend Chantal Duffy, the painter, is here, and we've been talking so much about this book, the construction of this book and yeah. about one or eight. And is this a masked time? Is this, this is, a time when... It's a masked yeah. time. Yeah. It's a time where people have all sorts of false identities. And what David did with that project was he brought Rambo into his own life. He made the Rambo story part of the Lower East Side in the 70s. He took him to the meatpacking mm. district. He went cruising, but it was with this Rambo. Yeah. He took the myth on. And it seemed to me like, what would happen if you took Kathy Acker into the 21st century? What, what would she make of things? What would she think about it? And how much does her writing answer back to this moment? So whenever this character, Kathy, is writing, it's always Acker's writing. Yeah. And that, just bringing those words into now, felt electrifying. I mean, I don't know whether she would have approved the project or not, but I felt like there was a sense in which her writing was just 
longing for this moment. But then one of the things that the book asks is what reality and identity are anyway. Is there a real Kathy Acker? Is there a real Olivia Lang? There's just layers and layers and layers. Yeah, Yeah, there's multiple different masks that you wear in different situations. And there's this crazy division we have between the personal and the political as if they're separate worlds. And they... (laughs) I'm having a supervision. For for instance, for instance, the, the, the... epigraph of this book. The cheap 12-inch square marble tiles behind speaker at UN always bothered me. I will replace with beautiful large marble slabs if they ask me. Talk about the political styling, as it were. That's a, that's a completely unattributed tweet from Donald Trump okay. before he became president. I, I wanted... <laughs> I mean, that is planned, right? Perfect. I wanted everyone's Voices. I want. To, I mean, I'll just say something about how I wrote this book. So, I had two rules. I wasn't allowed to edit or even reread, and I had to write at least once a day. And actually, often it was three times a day. I mean, I don't know how. Why you guys, did you have the rules? I just. You I just was had playing. The, okay, it was a game that I was playing, okay, yeah, and yeah. it it came with some rules. I think because it was like Kathy Acker in the seventies writing according to rules, and it felt exciting to me to have some rules. The ball game of language. The ball game of language. Yeah. yeah the yeah. exchange of language. Yeah. So. Um, I was writing down everything that came my way. Everything that happened went in. So if Trump tweeted something about the troops or nuclear war, it went in, in his own words. Nothing's in quote marks. It's all just as it the now pours onto you day by day. And I just wanted to write down what it feels like to be drenched under it. To be now, to be at this point where things move so fast and so febrile. And you're breaking us. under it. So the mm. sense of a stable identity, the idea that there might be a stable individual in a realist novel about this moment is absurd to me. Good. Of course the eye is cracking yeah. up and fracturing. The remaking of the novel. Yeah. Yeah. And we're inventing ourselves all the time on Twitter, on Instagram. We're creating these curated selves. So it, I see that in that I see a kind of a lineage that comes, and I don't even know if you'll think these people are lineage, but from uh, right back at the beginning of the 20th century, Charlotte Mew, the poet, who wrote, who wrote uh, the line, his hands are full of broken things. Mm. I mean, her, her poetry is, is a, a kind of force of uh, pace, which you know, I recognise in Crudo. The, the, there's something about the points of the coming into the new century, which are passed through both books. And Mansfield, Catherine Mansfield, who's all about performance, and Isherwood, and Plath, and Acker. These seem to me to be... And Wolf, definitely, and definitely. Wolf. I mean, this is Wolf's yeah. project. I feel like all we yeah. can do in some ways is just sort of shuffle after Wolf trying to continue little tiny aspects of her great project. And a lot of that is about how do you, how do you get what it's like to live in the present? And it's so ironic that she's a writer who's always thought about in terms of her end as if she's travelling towards this tragic end, whereas she's somebody who is continually trying to work out a way of writing about what it's like to live right now with the future ahead of you, but no sense of what that's going to be, this openness around you, mm. dragging the past behind you like tin cans. It's a risk, as you, you know, the quote, it's a risk that you take with the form of the novel mm. to do that. But the force of it, the core of it, is utter generosity because it, in the assimilation of all the things we've been talking about, including the realities and the writers all as one thing, you open by your writing and by extension all writing, everything that's written to open source. And the shared self, if you like, the question of how we cohabit, is at the core of this book. Yeah? Yeah. 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 The idea of just how you... Cathy's struggling with the idea of intimacy and the idea of commitment, but that seems to me... This is what I mean about the personal and political not being separate. We see that as a personal question and we see a world of 
hyperviolence as a political question. We see concentration camps for children as a political question. But actually, the two are constantly enmeshed. How we live, how we're capable of dealing with conflict, how we're capable of dealing with care, all of these different things are how we make the political world that we live in. It's us that make it. And our small changes also change it. And yet, do you think this book could have been written without Trump? No. No, absolutely not. No, there's something about the level of horror that I felt like I and everyone I knew had fallen into. I mean, Brexit was a beginning of it, but there's something about the grotesqueness of Trump, the voice of Trump. There's so many of his tweets sort of weaved, woven yeah. into it. I have a feeling we have Trump and Putin to thank, you know, all their theatricality to thank for this book. I don't think it's good enough. <laughs> she Sorry, missed the sense of time it. as something... No, 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 listen. She missed the sense of time as something serious and diminishing. She didn't like living in the permanent presence of the id. Mm. I mean, it's, it, says, it says it in a way And the next we, line is, she missed Obama. Everyone missed Obama. <laughs> she missed Obama. Everyone missed Obama. But, I mean, that, that way, the novel becomes in a way id and ego and superego because it becomes mm. the critique that we need to be able to articulate where we are and what is happening. Uh, and this is a character exactly who's now. an egotist and yeah. a narcissist and yeah. is incredibly selfish and self-absorbed and about learning how to, one person learning how to open up in the midst of a society that's getting more and more closed and controlled and regulating its borders and policing its borders. It's about trying to do the opposite. But it's also really largely about the, sh the, the shift between feeling and numbness mm. from not just the news feed, but the ways in which we are feeding ourselves with all information now. Yeah. There's this quote, there's a beautiful thing. You say, Kathy was becoming obsessed with the numbness, the way the news cycle was making her incapable of action. <laughs> no one could put anything together. That was the problem. That, that recurs, that, mm. that notion of the not being able to connect, the disconnect. Yeah. That's technological. Is it technological or disconnect? Is that... I don't think it's just technolo technological because um, I was reading Philip Guston, the painter Philip Guston, was yeah. talking about this same thing in the 60s and he was saying he'd been reading Holocaust testimony and he was sort of fascinated and horrified by the way by the way that everything the Nazis did was designed to make people numb, to make people feel helpless and as if they didn't have any agency. Mm. And then he talks about people, the people who'd escaped from camps and what they'd had to do to unnumb themselves. And then at the end of this, this statement, he says, that's the job of an artist, it's to make you unnumb. And that just felt to me like, yeah. we can't, we writers can't change the political situation, but there is something we can do in terms of engaging with us, the people. Okay. At which point this novel is really all about what a novel is for. I mean, that to me, well, first, before, before we start to talk about, you know, what, what a novel might be for, um, what was it like to, to, to start to write fiction after nonfiction? Did it feel different? Was it, what's, what happens formally in your head when that happens? What's the thing, the, the, I mean, practically the physical thing that happens when you shift from one form to another? It was the most liberating, ecstatic writing experience I've ever had. And I know I won't have that experience again because the way I write nonfiction is obsessive, it takes a very long time, it's very research heavy, I'm in archives a lot, but also I write and rewrite every sentence 200 times and it's agonizing. I mean, I hate it, I hate the process. So being able to make this rule that I didn't look back at sentences meant I could move so much faster. There was, you know, I always said I'd never write fiction because I didn't see a need to, and I was wrong. Like, there was no way that I could have recorded what this moment felt like with nonfiction because it would have, 
what pretended towards yeah. some sort of capacity of understanding and commenting, some sort of idea that there was a sense, and there isn't. It's senseless what's happening at the mm. moment. It, it's not possible to talk about in non-fiction. Perhaps it will be in a decade, but right now it's not. Why? What is it? What is the special uh, quality of fiction that means that that's why we and how we can talk about it? I think something about being able to do things simultaneously, to be able to have multiple threads going on at once, something about having a single person's, a character's voice telling the story allows you to do something that you can't if you have this sort of the non-fiction narrator telling you in this calm, stately way what's happening. There isn't a calm, stately way to talk about now. In, does that make the novel a kind of multiple? Like yes. a Warhol multiple? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a sort of stamping of different versions of the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then it, it, the novel itself it refers to itself um, throughout. The, it, it, it kind of begs the deeply novelistic question of likable characters. So this repeats throughout it. So, you know, was Kathy nice? It says practically on the, it says on the first page, doesn't it? And then later on page 85, it's saying, uh, it's looking like probably no. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by, on page 86, who gave a fuck, Kathy thought. No one liked Putin. Likeability was irrelevant. What mattered was whether you could make people numb enough to change all the laws, change the entire system. Yeah? It's a fun, we're in a funny moment with likeability, aren't we? Because social media has made us addicted to being liked. I mean, literally liked. We all want these likes. We, we gather up these yeah, likes. Yeah. And at the same time, people who are profoundly dislikable are running the country. People who are profoundly dislikable are running America. There's this sort of odd tension, and I don't even know what to sort of say about that or how to speculate about that. I just feel like that's, that's an energy that's going on at the moment. That's something that is intriguing to me. And what to, why? Come on. Kind of open that. Because why do you why yeah. why do you want to be liked? Why do you want to be liked by other people when it's not what's needed right now? It isn't what we need to be doing. We we need to be thinking much more in a communal way, in a collective way. I think it's something about that. Yeah. It's something about, no, it's not just that. It's about difference as well. I think that there's a real problem at the moment, which is not accepting other people's difference, not allowing yeah. people to be different from yeah. each other, finding it absolutely threatening for people to have different opinions, different takes, different languages. And the idea of trying to be likable seems to, seems to sort of thread into that, that it's something about not wanting to be threatening. At a moment where I think we do need to make much more allegiances and tolerate difference much mm -hmm. more strongly. I know, the notion that uh, I can only like this story if there's something in it that is like me and that I like. Likeness. Yeah, yeah. wanting things to be the same. Mm. Bullshit. Mm. I mean, well, what do you want no, more, the, for if more you don't bullshit. want difference? Yeah. If you don't want to be introduced to the idea that other people are different from you. It, that, that seems to me the point of the novel, certainly, but other art forms too. Uh, yeah, other art forms too. So, that, I mean, that, in a way, that's, that's the, again, the, tell us why this novel hangs about the other art forms, because it does, that's its club. Yeah, it's right yeah. lurker. Yeah, go on. <laughs> it does, it hangs about, it hang, like for instance, that was that's, uh, Rachel Newborn, the artist that you're describing in the piece yeah. you read to us. Yeah, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's full of artists. It's, some, some artists in it are named mm. and some artists in it aren't named. Um, but. I suppose partly because I'm still so from hangover from the lonely city. That was the moment where I became completely fascinated by visual art and using visual art as a way to think into places that 
we're resistant to language. We're resistant to being talked about. I feel like there's such a danger with language at the moment that things become glib, things become easy to say, things become boiled down and thrown back in your face. There's this idea that people are constantly being challenged by statements that they made a long time ago. That sort of Twitter thing that goes on and on. There's something about art that lets you express without getting into that. It gets past that. And that's, that's what feels very exciting to me, that there's a way of expressing emotional states or expressing political longings yep. by way of something visual. Also, I just really like looking at pictures. <laughs> and it asks the question of why anyone produces anything as well, this, this novel. It does ask about creativity mm. at its core. And it asks about why we, why we would ever produce anything that took the form of art. Um, at one point, Cathy is in such a state. Uh, she says, there is no story, she writes. I'm going crazy. It's just a cry. Mm. But there is a story. Which, actually, that was a quote from Cathy Acker, which I could not find, so I couldn't source it. And then I found it the other day, but now it's too late. So <laughs> the estate will probably sue me for that line. It's not my line. <laughs> but there, there is, and you find this sense in her all the time as well. She's, she's somebody, I feel like I haven't done justice to Cathy in this, the real Cathy. She's somebody who's always writing at the pitch of senselessness. She's always writing things that are terrified of and longing for toppling over the edge into senselessness, this sort of abyss of not being understood, which is part of what I find so sort of alluring about her writing. So that I'm going crazy, it's a cry. The, the, I, I feel like that's something that is the artist's sort of terror. Mm. I can't describe this. This is beyond description. And it's a terror I certainly feel, and I think a lot of people feel about this moment. I can't, what's the point of art in a moment like this? What's the point of doing anything? And at the same time, what kind of world do we want? And is it a world with art in it? And if so, then got to keep making it. It's got to mm. still be there. Mm. It's a very complicated sort of ethical position to inhabit. <laughs> Why do we make art, Ali? Tell me. Um... <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 
but it is but that in a way that is the is the is this novel's revolution. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I keep saying this book is a love story, and it is. It's like a very, very political love story. Yeah. It's yeah. about being in despair and deciding that it's still worth trying. It's about thinking, as I very much did in September last year, that we were going to be annihilated in nuclear war, and it's still worth loving somebody. It's still worth writing something down. It's still worth making a story up in the hope that... I mean, that's... that not to go down, but like that's as good as it gets in some ways. It is always in the hope that you touch somebody, in the hope that you change something. I was, I've been reading the new Sally Rooney book, which is coming out in September, and you all must absolutely buy. And she says this amazing thing in it, which I'm still really struck by. There's a young character in her 20s, and she's talking about, um, when I was a year or so younger, I thought I could save everyone in the world. I thought I was so brilliant, I was so clever, I'd be able to solve these problems. And now I see that actually perhaps one or two people's lives would be marginally improved by my existence. And she's very depressed by that, but at the same time, it seems like actually one or two people's lives slightly better because of your existence. Great, that's amazing. That's, again, that's as good as it gets. Um, I'm going to ask you some of Kathy's questions now because this book is full of questions, so I'm just going to ask them to you. Human relations, how? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Human relations, huh? I mean, they're just so difficult. And a lot of this, like, you know, I'd written a book about loneliness. I'd been alone for a very long time. Then I was in a relationship and getting married. And those, those were my questions. Like, how? How do you stay kind? How do you not lose your shit all the time? How are you chill when you are a really unchill person? All of those things <laughs> seemed like, you know, they're live questions to me. Perhaps everyone else has that sort of stuff locked down, but I really didn't. <laughs> and it felt sort of good to unpack that as well. That it's all very well talking about melancholy or shame or these, these emotions that are actually in some ways easier to talk about. But selfishness seems really interesting to me in this selfish age actually unpacking what it's like to be a very selfish person <laughs> is a little bit embarrassing, but also seems like it's worth, it's worth um, mapping. Yeah. OK. <laughs> Number two. What's the novel about if not getting fucked? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. That is what the novel's about. Is it? Is it what the novel's about? In one way or the other. And yes. You see, that made, sex that made me terribly loss. excited because of the act of embedding that is all the way through this, which meant that an embedding of text is a kind of erotic act. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. It's a sensual act. Yeah. And it's a, it's a generative act. It makes something happen. Okay, <laughs> the last of these questions. I mean, what is art if it's not plagiarising the world? <laughs> I just think that's what it is. Yeah. I do think that's what it is. I mean, what are we doing? We're whatever kind of fiction you're writing, in some way you're trying to create a replica of what the world felt like, what the world feels, smelt like, yes. how it how it is to inhabit it. Yes. Even if you're writing sci-fi, even if you're Margaret Atwood, you're, there's still some sense of trying to get. This is what it's like to be on this little planet for this brief period. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Okay, I'm going to wind up with one or two things, and then I'm going to open it to the floor. Okay, um, <laughs> that phrase of yours, the whole green simultaneity of life. I mean, that's a phrase I wish I'd written. I'm, I'm just going to take it and embed it in my next novel, <laughs> as if I did. And I, I, I'm hoping your publishers won't give me a, you know, a hassle. Uh, 
<laughs> Again, he's looking tense. <laughs> um, quote, she wanted to write another book, obviously, and she wanted to find a way of situating it nowhere. How's that going? <laughs> Fucking awful. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. This is the body book. And I mean, that is something that it's so hard to articulate what I'm talking about until I finish this book. I hate talking about it. Okay. But there's some way in which I don't, I don't want it to be tied to a moment. I don't want it to seem like it's a story about Berlin in 1939. I don't want it to seem like it's a story about Britain in 2017. <laughs> not, not Crudo. This is, this is everybody, the other yeah. book. I yeah. want to find some way in which it's about questions that are ongoing. Although, but the interesting thing about Crudo, to me, is that it's full of medievalism. Mm. I mean, we, you know, we, we kind of don't expect it. Suddenly, it'll just drop into your scrying uh, eye, the scrying glass, which yeah. is Twitter. Yeah. Or it'll drop into listening. She hears voices. Kathy hears voices. And the voices she hears are actually voices of people around her, but she's still hearing voices. It's still mm. something about the medieval saint yeah. in that. It yeah. crosses time. And that she's walled time. in. She's got that sort of anchorite walled in thing, and then mm. she has to smash her way out of it. Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, this beautiful thing, this throwaway phrase, this, this book full of beautiful throwaway phrases about which people could write each, you know, a different thesis, uh, I think, about each. Power and ice, their similarities. The colder we are, more powerful? The colder we are, but also that it, power just drains away. Power, we have these powerful, powerful people, we have these powerful eras, and then they just fall away. There's, there's some sense of wanting a long view in this book as well, that it's very caught up with the moment, but it's also aware that we're in a Roman Empire, we're in Berlin before the Nazis arrived, we're in these moments, and what happens has absolute reality, and at the same time it's a speck of dust, it just turns into something else, on and on it goes. Mm. So ice turns into water yeah. and turns back into ice, on we go. Mm. The uncool coolness of this book's risk-taking, it's brilliant. And <laughs> um, this is my last question, and it comes from one of your phrases, and we're just, uh, we've been talking about it, but I just want to, to end at least my part of this with this quote from you, from the book. That's the only reason to be an artist, to escape to bear witness to this. What is the reason? That's, that's the Philip Gaston bit that I was talking about earlier, and I think that is the reason. I think that is the only reason. I mean, to escape, to get out of the camps, to get out of the okay. prison Good. of the moment, the and prison the prison of, the of selfishness, all of these Good. prisons that we're in. This book is so much inspired by Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin, which in some ways is like Christopher Isherwood having sex in the Kit Kat Club, mm -hmm. and in other ways is about a descent into hell and how that happens and how individual people deal with that, who gives into it, who collaborates, who chooses to resist, how those people make those decisions are based in their personal lives. And there are ways out. There are always ways out. There's always a gap in the fence. You can choose to be the person that mans the borders or you can choose to be the person with the wire cutters. It's up to you. Questions from the audience, please. You write about um, visual art in your non-fiction with this kind of beautiful lightness that feels already a lot like fiction or poetry. And I was wondering if when you sort of set out to write fiction with that intention, whether you felt like you were engaging with visual art in a different way at all, or if it was sort of an ex sort of similar experience. I think it came from the same impulse, but I just felt much, much freer. You know, in Lonely City, 
it was still in some ways there's a scholarliness to it that I, w I wanted to sort of say what the sources were and where I was seeing things and to have some sort of solid critical view to it. Whereas with this, because it was from the perspective of this person who's so extreme, it let me really romp around what, what I felt things looked like or felt like or what angered me or what made me excited. So it, I had much, much more liberty. And I, I notice now when I'm writing reviews or when I'm writing stuff that, again, has that sort of critical voice, that it's definitely loosened some, some joints got broken and the stayed like looser, which I think is a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> We'll see. I think what I found really interesting keeping up with you writing this book is exactly what you've been talking about, which is this freedom of accepting the kind of dominance of narrative. And something that I found really interesting um, in reading a bit more philosophy in the last couple of years has been of all the kind of theories of essentialism for humans is the idea that the human is the narrative animal. Mm. And I think... I think if I was to, if I was to question anything, it's like whether you think that realizing that accepting that narrative is everything is going to allow you to write more freely in a non-fiction capacity. Good question. Because actually, if you think of sorry, yeah. finishing, but like if you think of how you wrote the Lonely City, you were still finding a narrative thread that could be challenged in lots of ways because a lot of it was your narrative thread. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some ways that was not not a, um, a move into fiction, but into just this is the way that I want to assemble this story. These are the these are the people that I'm interested. You know, what do they all have to do with each other? Warhol and Wonorovich and Edward Hopper, just some sort of tracking that I could see and then try to lay down so that other people could follow. But it was it was really a sort of breadcrumb path through the forest. Like that that was a risk, and this is very much more of that more of that element but I feel like with a narrative animal but we ha we tell so many stories and our stories contradict and our stories get into wars with each other and there's something about having that fluidity I mean Ali is the true queen of that of being able to jump stories jump into a different story change your story let your story transform you that we don't have to have one set of stories that's really interesting precisely because of the ways in which um, Lonely City trekked an autobiographical thing which opened, and so does Crudo. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm loath to use the, uh, the notion of autobiography anywhere near it, although we know that there's something of your life in this. But it, it doesn't matter, does it? It's no, irrelevant. No, it's totally the, irrelevant. The single life has become irrelevant. It could be anyone's irrelevant. life. It was yeah. just that I fiction happened to have more... Fiction frees the self. For, fiction frees the self, yeah. and the autobiographical element is just like... It's material, it's useful data on what a human life in 2017 was like and what t-shirt you might have worn yeah. and what tube line you might travel on. I mean, why make that up? I, I had it, I'd done it, so why not just use that? I had other things to do. Like, yeah. that wasn't... Why making would, it up wasn't... Why would, why would, <laughs> why would we expect... <laughs> why would we expect the novel not to be the reality? Mm. Yeah. 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 So, sort of going on from that, like, I, I was at a book event the other day and I was talking about reading Crudo and... Um, the person I was talking to asked me, like, because I was talking about how an element of it is the marriage, and and um, so the the um, the person asked me, like, like, oh, so is Olivia Lane straight? And <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. that's that's not really the question that I don't know that that should be asked, or at least it's certainly not the most interesting question. And so, like, as you publish more and you um, are uh, include so much of your life in your own fiction, nonfiction, like, do you find it challenging as you become a more public figure that 
people want to define public figures and put them in boxes and uh, define them in certain ways. And like, yeah, so how yeah. do you sort of combat that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I, I really hate that. And I think especially, um, you know, and this is something I'm comfortable about talking about in this room, but not in all rooms where I get asked these questions, like my gender identity is trans. So yeah, I married a man, like what, what's the surprise there? It's, it's not straight, but it looks straight. So I think there are rooms that I walk into where assumptions are made about my gender that aren't the case. Um, and that makes me feel really uncomfortable and really uneasy. What can you do? Keep pushing away, I suppose. Um, but generally, like I think if you use material from your own life, then you're going to get people writing about it in the standard and saying what kind of china you eat your breakfast off. And that seems like point missing, but also that's just what the world's like. So I guess you need to be thick-skinned. How do you reconcile with what we say about um, differences and people having these differences and all the kind of battles on Twitter with the really bad people? How do we reconcile that yeah. with the people who are doing evil things and they're over there and we're here? How do we how do we join up? How do we unify people? That, that's that's so essential. That feels so essential that we're kind of constantly lost in these battles that in some ways are vital about how we use language and microaggressions and all, all of these things that are really important. But at the same time, there has to be some base tolerance of people having different opinions and being able to have solidarity. I just feel like solidarity is the most important concept in the world because it isn't about everyone thinking the same thing. It's about people from different struggles making now common the ground. the base thing of like, is it bad to put children in a camp has changed because that's not... The Overton window. Other people don't think that's bad now. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. So when those things happen... Like no, no, no. Just because people have done it doesn't make it not bad. That's, that's, that's the next step we have to make. Yeah. That's the, the point at which media is failing us right now. Yeah. yeah, and that's the problem with media because it does just say this has happened. It immediately makes it legitimate, and then it says, "Oh well, let's have one of those intel guys on to talk about what they think. Women should be in rape camps. Oh well, now let's have an op-ed about that." It's fucking crazy. It fills, it fills the space. That's the problem. It fills, yeah. the, it fills the space. And the media is set up to not to be against the media because I'm part of it, but it is set up in a way that actually has turned out to be quite problematic. In that it's always trying to have the other side, and the other side has got so incredibly extreme yeah. that's a problem i don't know the answer to that but i think we will come to an answer because we have to yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to encourage you to lurk around the other arts can you talk about the cover and and, and oh yeah. And, yeah it's such a beautiful cover but it's also really um the, the, its resonance might not be immediately obvious so that yeah interesting to... so um there's a scene in the book which has become sort of very key to me of um cassie eating a crab and smashing it with a hammer, smashing it open, and then continually sort of throughout the book reflecting on this idea of wanting to be opened, wanting to undo her boundaries, to be more <coughs> available to people, <coughs> to be more available to love, I suppose. So <coughs> I had this crab thing going on in my head, and this is um, this amazingly beautiful picture is by Wolfgang Tillmans, and... Um, hold up. <laughs> It's so, it's so, like, the colours are beautiful. It's got this sort of memento mori thing going on with the fly and the way of all flesh Catholic stuff, which I kind of like as well. Um, and I decided I wanted it, so I wrote to his gallerist and said, what do you think? And she'd really liked the Lenny City, so she said, well, here's Wolfgang's email address. And Wolfgang wrote back and said, 
It sounds right up my strasse. <laughs> Make sure I not say about everything all the time. <laughs> hi. Um, sorry, it's not really a fully formed question, but I like asking questions. I went to it. Um, hi. Um, so I know that your um, previous book, I haven't read this book, by the way, but um, I know that they're very generous towards visual art, but how much... Do you think it works the other way, like the visual arts into literary? And that's very much no, but I don't know. Like, to what extent do you think visual art at the moment mm -hmm. is commenting on what's going on in um, the literary world? So I think, you know, it's sometimes been two-way, but at the moment I, I don't see that. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the, there's lots of people whose conversations really inform this book, but one of them is my friend Chantal Jaffe, who's over there, who's a painter and... It, fascinated by literary figures, fascinated by writers, and the, the sort of intensity of the conversations, I sit for her quite a lot, and the intensity of the conversations we have from discipline to discipline felt like it really informed what I was doing in this book. So I, I can't answer for all artists, but I certainly feel like there are artists who are quite excited by what... Because it feels like we're in a really good moment for literature, like exciting cross-genre stuff is happening in books all over the place. There's amazing things going on, and... So I'm glad that, that that sort of sense of crackling is, you know, artists are interested by it, drawn to it as well. Just, just an extension of that question. I mean, would you or have you considered working in a more kind of closely collaborative way with visual artists in your own, in your own work? Sarah Wood and I, the filmmaker Sarah Wood and I, are in fact collaborating at the moment on a show about Orlando, installation and show about Orlando, which is going to be at Charleston Festival in September. So, yeah, I mean, I do, I do regularly collaborate with visual artists, and it's the thing that I most like doing. I find it really exciting. There's, there's something about jumping over the gap between disciplines that I always find really exciting. That sort of illicit reaching feels very exciting to me. Yeah. That's the place where it all happens. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like a lot of your work and life is, is constantly kind of com coming up and trying to smash taboos. And a lot of Crudo's is kind of the horror at some of the taboos that maybe should be taboos um, breaking down. So yeah. is there a future for taboos? Wow. <laughs> what do you think? Well, it's up to you. You're, you're answering this one, not me. <laughs> is there a future for taboos? I mean, yeah, I feel like it should be taboo to put a child in a cage. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys think? <laughs> Well, it is. Yeah. It is taboo to put a child in a cage. It's the child catcher. From it's myth. It's titty titty bang bang. Trump knows exactly what he's doing. It's all theatre. Yeah. It's all a theatre of horror. It's or a, a theatre enacted on people's bodies, though, on vulnerable bodies. On real people, really, cruelly happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think it's not ending. It's not ending at all. It's families in indefinite detention. It's not ending. So, yes, I think there is a future for taboos. And I think there are, tabo there are taboos that limit people's freedoms there are there are prejudices that limit people's freedoms and then there are other taboos that are there to ensure all of our freedoms and i feel like one kind is better than the other does this really need saying and yet it does need saying because we all seem to have not us in this room necessarily but communally as a people currently we seem to have forgotten that okay well, i have two because i've got a cheeky one and <laughs> one to that do you think kathy acker would think there should be an end to taboos i mean does she would she get rid of them and I also want to ask if Kathy Acker was redesigning the United Nations, or Kathy, maybe I should say, is redesigning the United Nations, what would she do with those tiles that's behind them? <laughs> oh, God, I mean, 
I, th I think in some ways Kathy Acker would find me so unbearably earnest. <laughs> you know, oh, I want the world to be better. She'd be like, oh, for fuck's sake. It's not going to be. Get used to it. But I th also think like she, her, her rooms are like those sort of theatre of horrors that she creates these scenarios and puts herself, her whatever her character is, her Don Quixote character or her Pip character, you know, all of these different people, she puts them through this mill and almost like Desire does, what happens? When when do they, are they destroyed? Do they survive? And often they do survive. Often they're like these hardened little kernels that come out at the end. And I feel like that actually, there is an earnest question going on at the heart of Acker that is about what is the meaning of pain? Do, do we have... Do we have meaning? Do our lives have meaning? Perhaps not, perhaps not. And then at the end, well, perhaps they do. God knows what she'd do with the United Nations. I don't imagine her going into the United <laughs> Nations. It doesn't seem like very ACA territory. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, mm. unfortunately. Mm. Hi. Um, so the idea of like uh, living with a lot of voices in your head and that being something that's kind of particularly potent within our moment and simultaneously the idea that um, in intimacy and in personal relationships, you can kind of uh, maybe triumph over that because that it's more specific to the, the relation between two people. Um, that kind of seems to, the idea again of like difference being embraced and celebrated. Do you think that there is some trouble in the fact that 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 message just sounds like trite, like love love is the answer. It sounds trite, like however much it is true, the fact that it's like associated with like being an easy answer and an easy message is in itself problematic. And that's why like when you're discussing um, mm -hmm. on the news, children being torn apart from their families, it's it feels like so uh, distant from that, from, an, from a conversation about love, from a conversation mm -hmm. about like what it means to be a human. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, like, I, I, does it not feel a bit like a struggle to end on the message, like, love is the answer, love is trite, when you know that that answer is out there, we just, we just don't access it or make it feel, like, potent enough as often as we should. I also think it's really, really hard. Like, part of the, the project of Crudo is trying to just set down how hard, it's so glib to say love, but actually it's really, really difficult. It's really difficult to not be selfish. It's really difficult to care for another person. It's really difficult to take another person yeah. in, let alone people who are strangers who you don't know. The, those sort of acts of generosity, I think maybe the word generosity just sounds like it's this sort of easy, available thing. And so I wanted to look at somebody who was ungenerous, mm. who was unloving, and see what it meant for them to just inch towards being slightly kinder. Because I, th I think you're right, it just... It sounds so drippy, and actually it's like, it's labor, it's work, it's effort, it's creativity. To be loving is an act of constant sort of ingenuity, because yeah. everything's sort of arranged against it, including our massive egos. <laughs> I don't think it's maybe cheeky and fun enough to be the last one, but um, <laughs> I was just wondering about empathy, which seems alongside solidarity, the other thing yeah. that maybe we need to hang on to. Um, and I was wondering about the writers in um, the trip to, for Echo Spring versus Kathy Acker and whether, I've not read Crudo yet, but it feels like with the trip to Echo Spring you were, you kind of almost happened upon a certain level of empathy with the writers that you were, you set about writing about. And I wondered to what extent that was what happened with Kathy or whether Crudo began with that sense of empathy, if that makes sense. That's, that's really interesting. Because I think 
I think Echo Spring was so much looking at how damage reproduces, how why, why are people damaged, like what are the forces that cause people to be damaged, which is sort of the question of the Lonely City as well. Um, and talking about these external forces so we can be empathic about the suffering person. And Crude is sort of different because it's more like, well, how do you create your own reality? How do you choose these things? And we do both. Like, let me make it very clear that we don't, we don't choose all of our own suffering at all by any means. Lots of it comes from external reasons. But there's some element as well in which we do have agency and we do create worlds that we inhabit. And it felt exciting to me to sort of change frame and to look at, to look at that in a moment where we can so easily feel powerless. What can we feel powerful about? And what are ways that we can unpick those tendencies towards hatred, aggression in ourselves, in small ways, but also in larger ways? And so I think there's sort of mirror images and acceptance. Yeah, and these words are so awful, acceptance, love, generosity. I mean, they're oh, just... Don't. Those are great words. But they're great <laughs> words. But they're just, they're used in such a sloppy way as if they're just there. And they're not. They're this sort of effortful, exciting thing. And I think if we think of them as this exciting project, it's so different. Is that where we're going to end? <laughs> we're from the ingenuity, the ingenuity of love to the ingenuity of Crudo. I want you to thank the gods for the ingenuity of Olivia Lang. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.